I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome to episode 75 of The Hilo, the weekly current affairs and pop culture podcast brought to you by journalist Dolly Alderton and Pandora Sykes. Full disclosure, we are recording ahead of time. In fact, we are speaking to you from two weeks in the past. (laughs) This is like one of those um, time capsules that Blue Peter presenters told kids to bury in the ground on the day of the new millennium. The year is 2018. The date is October the 10th. No cars are flying as of yet. Pandora, where will you be the moment our listeners are tuned into this? I think you're giving this a a false sense of um, inflated importance, the two weeks (laughs) past. Well, if you're a super fan and listening the morning of this podcast's release, I will be at Heckfield Place with my favourite two people. I'd like to say I'll be kicking back, but I'll also be with a baby, so it'll be a sort of active relaxing. So a mental relaxation, not a physical one, but that's fine. Nay, great. With me. I'm doing a staycation in my fair city. I was going to go away, but I've decided to have a week off doing all the stuff in London I never get to do when I'm working all the time. Mm. So I'll either be at the Frida Kahlo exhibition or in the middle of a three hour ramble on the Heath or drinking a tinny on an open top bus tour of London while wearing a beef eater hat. So as this is a relic from the past, as Dolly dramatically describes it, instead of rabbiting about news from the week that caught our attention, we'll read some nice emails from the mailbag dish out some recommendations that we've saved for this episode and bring you what we like to think of as a rather brilliant author special. First up from the mailbag. Hi Pandoli, I'm a huge Hilo fan and I'm very excited to be making my first foray into ye olde mailbag trademark (laughs) to tell you about my amazing life-affirming choir. I know you've had a few listeners write in recently about loneliness and being in lips, which is the name of the choir, is the best antidote I know. I wanted to recommend joining a choir. Any choir will do and you don't have to be able to sing. We are non-auditioning. Singing in that environment of sisterly solidarity is almost meditative in its power because you have to totally focus on the choir leader and the voices around you and nothing else. I've been in lips for six years and we've done so many amazing gigs. Best of all main stage, played on the Sunday morning to literally no one but felt amazing because Sheik and Niall Rogers were headlining that very stage that evening. I think that's very cool. Royal Albert Hall, backing for Goldfrap, fucking terrifying but brilliant. Trump demonstration, the list goes on. Choirs have been in the news loads recently, with scientists finding that group singing boosts your mental well-being thanks to a rush of oxytocin and endorphins. We've just announced our big annual gigs for 2018, all themed around the best dance tunes of all time. Tickets are £15, £8 for concessions, and the choir will also be raising money for women asylum seekers together. Yours, in high lowliness, Sarah Lillywhite. Thank you, Sarah. We will include details for the upcoming gigs and how to join uh, in the bio. 
we always have listeners writing in asking about how to meet people and how to make friends and being in cities on their own and, and wanting to kind of form a, a social group. So I thought this was just like a really fun idea of how, for how to meet new people. From the lights of the stage to the peace of the cow sheds. We very much enjoyed this email from Alison Barry. I just wanted to say a quick hello and tell you how much my whole family love your podcast. We are dairy farmers in rural Hawke's Bay, New Zealand, where my husband originates from and I am an import to New Zealand. My husband has started listening to the Hilo alongside his usual farming podcasts when he is milking the cows. I just thought you'd like to know that your insightful discussions are reaching the cow sheds of New Zealand and are being listened to not only by my dairy farming husband but also by several hundred cows each week. Dolly and Pandora, you keep me sane by giving me a break from my children and by giving me the chance to pretend that I'm part of the hustle and bustle of UK life. This isn't an understatement when I say you change the way I think and feel and shape my discussions in so many ways. Thank you for letting me sit at the table with my cup of tea each week. Alison, Robert, Freddie, Mabel and several hundred cows. I just love that so much. Pandora and I have a general rule of never reading out praise when people write into the show. And I'd like you to know there's a lot of praise, actually. Well, I, I, I actually used to put it in and you took it out every time. But I, it is a little bit immodest. And actually, the only person who I allow to do it is Steve Wright. You don't listen to Radio 2, do you? Steve Wright is the only Radio 2 DJ who reads out every single piece of praise when he gets a text hello steve i've been listening to steve right in the afternoon for 10 years you're my best friend and i think you're brilliant oh thank you very much literally every single email i do retweet praise though almost all of it which dolly is much too cool to do so if you see a lot of high low praise being retweeted (laughs) it me i just thought it was nice to read this email out because it really demonstrated to me the kind of transporting magic of Mm. podcasts and i love the idea of our waffling on being someone's uh, piece of home while they're living so far away so thank you Alison for letting us know and we are so happy to be audio company for you your husband and your cattle before we run our interview this week what are your recommendations for the week Dolly well this is rather unorthodox for the high low but I have some recommendations of some apps to make life easier because I complain all the time about finding life overwhelming and yet I'm on my phone 99% of the live long day. So I might as well use this bloody iPhone that's ruining my brain and my life to be, to organize myself. So I've discovered deliveries. Do you use that? No. Deliveries is an app where you put in the delivery, the tracking numbers of the deliveries that you're expecting, and it sends you notifications on your phone for when they are predicted to arrive. There's TaskRabbit, which I have the app for, which is so bloody good. Uh, Since moving into my flat a year and a bit ago, I've had so many DIY things that I've needed. You don't have a man. You don't have a man to help you out. (laughs) If only I had a husband, Pandora. It's not a house without a man. (laughs) When I'm in need of someone to do handiwork, had a very brilliant woman. Oh, yeah. <laughs> had a very brilliant woman who came and did all my IKEA furniture at the beginning. Then I go on TaskRabbit, and it's like it's everything you can imagine. Even something like my bed. When I first got there, and I had a mate India come round to assemble the bed, we both just got quite drunk, and we did it in a bit of a cack-handed manner. And my bed was just squeaking every time I turned, turned, nothing else, and uh, it was driving me mad. So I got a man in to just like. Stop squeaking to make my bed less squeaky. Is that the woman you got in, you said? No. Didn't you say you got a woman in? No, that was for my IKEA furniture. For your IKEA furniture? Yeah. When you got a woman in for your IKEA furniture, did you deliberately choose a woman because you're a feminist? Um, I think I 
probably maybe that was at the back of my mind, but she just had a really high rating. And that's the great thing that's about Task Break. <laughs> it was so I could boast about it on my podcast and look progressive. That's the great thing about um, TaskRabbit is that it's everyone's rated. So um, it's just, and, and you don't have to get cash out because you put your card details in. So it just goes flying out of your account. Do you think if you're a massive like people pleaser and you really believe in the underdog, then you book the person that's got one out of five because you feel sorry for them? If you're an idiot, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it was great. So you've been enjoying the maps. Had, I even had one guy who came round. And uh, I didn't have the right ladder, so it was a wasted trip. But he liked the look of my guitar, and he was learning guitar. So we had a bit of a sing-along in my living room. Oh, my God, Dolly, that's Have hilarious. I not told you that? No. That was last year. His name no. was Salmon. We got on really well. We sang the Beatles. Anyway, I'd also like to recommend Gone for Good, which is a brilliant app where you take a picture of any unwanted things that you have in your house. It could be furniture, books, clothes... And then you upload it to the app, you choose a charity, and then a charity comes and picks up your unwanted things and, and donates it to a charity shop. Oh, brilliant. So it's harnessing much more unwanted stuff because it is an altruistic thing to take something to the charity shop. But not everyone has time exactly. to have too much stuff and not have a car. Yeah, I think it's a great, great yeah, app. Yeah, me too. And finally, I'd like to recommend the Sainsbury's app. Only- oh my God, Dolly. <laughs> This because I think it's like me recommending Ocado. No, the reason the Sainsbury's app is so good. I don't know if do you use the Ocado app. Every week, I haven't been to a super. Zadie's been to a supermarket once in her whole life. So I'm always in the Sainsbury's, but I've, I've used got a fresh delivery this morning. Would you like some lunch? Oh, very nice. Yes, please. Is that you can do repeat orders, so you yes, don't have to choose the groceries. I love. This is literally like Dolly recommending like air. There's this great thing called Uber, and it's a car <laughs> that comes to your door, Charlie. Um, so those are my apps. Oh, and Treatwell, which we already know about because we've talked about it before, but Treatwell's just so good for booking beauty treatments online and the money, again, just goes flying out for your account. So those are the apps that are making my life easier. I would also like to recommend the Goop podcast, which my friend Sarah Tomsack, who is the editor of Red, was going on and on about oh, I've how... i on and on about it on this podcast. Which one, which one did you... Have Olivia you... Wilde, the actor Olivia Wilde, was brilliant oh. on it about mothering. And um, seriously, hi, low listeners, I can't tell you how many times Dolly recommends something <laughs> that she's discovered from someone else. And I'm like, you discovered it from me but six she, months ago. Sarah didn't tell me to listen to Olivia Wilde. She told me to get into it because of the... <laughs> no, it's very good. The Lots Blythe of... Danner episode, have you listened to that? Oh, no, I haven't. So that's Gwyneth Paltrow's mother, who's also an actor. And the reason it's so good is I think it shows this kind of generational difference between women of our mother's age. And I think you it will really resonate with you. Where Gwyneth, who I happen to love, by the way, I think she's fucking brilliant. And I think that we will, like, be best friends one day. And she said, she's talking to her mum in this very, like, earnest, new age way. And she's like, mom, do you find when you're an actor, like your aesthetic becomes a really important part of who you are and did that kind of define you? And then there's like a kind of hollow pause and Bly says, yes, but I'm not that deep, honey. (laughs) (laughs) That's brilliant. But that's the ongoing thing. Okay, I've got a new... Anytime you or me get slightly sort of locked in this like solipsistic, you know, kind of gut-wrenching, who am I, what is my work, am I any good? I'm just going to say, 
be more blithe. Yeah. Be yeah. more blithe. But she says it throughout the episode because Gwyneth is just like desperately trying to get her to um, navel gaze and reflect on who she Does is. Does Gwyneth laugh when she says that or is she not? Really yeah, no, it's funny. it's funny. It's a great conversation between mother and daughter and they talk about their kind of difficulties. They were, they acted together and apparently blithe, she regrets the way that she behaved when they were both acting together. It's a very honest conversation, but over and over again, the theme is Gwyneth is trying to get her to unearth these sort of great profundities about herself. And Blythe just finds it embarrassing. She's just not used to talking about herself. I don't think herself. women of a generation think like that. Totally. I totally. think that's why my mother and probably your mother at times and various other parents just find children of our age absolutely hilarious. We yeah. Think, we think we have endless depths to plunder. Yeah. We think we're endlessly sort of emotionally and that, that we're pretty riveting. Yeah. Whereas my mum's like, no one is particularly riveting Let's get this show on the road. I think that's what it is. And that's the feeling that you get when you're listening to this conversation, that she just was a woman who wanted to just get on with things. And actually the fact, like every time Gwyneth brings, asks her another question, she says, oh, but I want to talk about you, honey. Like she, <laughs> she, starts, she finds it embarrassing that she's like talking about herself so much. So I just think it's a great conversation between mother and daughter. And as Pandora says, I think it could be a bit of a key for unlocking maybe the way some of our mothers behave. So that's lovely. And also the Sarah Jessica Parker episode is brilliant, who I just love, as is the Chrissy Teigen episode. Your face. As we know. Is my sister. I also, unsurprisingly, have a Desert Island Discs recommendation because Me why too, break? Week, oh, do you? I do. Yes. Oh, I'm excited. I was going to say why break the habit of a lifetime. I dug back into the archive and re-listened to an old favourite of mine, which is the Simon Cowell episode. Um, it was recorded at the absolute nexus of what the televised talent show's legacy will be. I think, looking back retrospectively, so it really is an interesting chat about the ethics of it the performative nature of it and he's just so funny and honest and very down to earth as an oh, interviewee I'm, I'm very divided over Simon Cowell because I think there's a lot about him that's kind of hidden I, I don't know I think maybe he's not I think he plays the celebrity game very well and um I think he's pretty ruthless as you'd have to be to get to that stage yeah. but I agree he's very charming so he's, I imagine he comes across brilliantly he's very self-aware in it and actually I forgot that his episode has my absolute favourite ending of any Desert Island Discs episode of all time Stern Sue Lawley can barely handle it it's such a joy to listen to I think I'm going to have to insert it here and a luxury we give you one luxury no practical value easy a mirror I don't believe it, sir. It's true. Why? Because I've missed me. You're going to let us broadcast that? I don't care. Well, I'm on my own. No one else around. I might as well have something. I'll have a mirror. You shall have one, Simon Carl. Thank you very much indeed for letting us hear your desert island is. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) I love him. Pandora, what have you been enjoying? Slightly soberer recommendation, Dope Sick, a book by Beth Macy about the opioid addiction in the States and how heroin addiction begun with OxyContin, a highly addictive pain medication, 20 years ago. My sister Enna lent me her copy and it's a fascinating read. Drug overdoses are now the leading cause of death for Americans under the age of 50. It kills more people than guns or car accidents and it kills at a rate higher than the HIV epidemic at its peak. In particular, it is the biggest killer of young white men. 
Men Dying in Their Prime, writes Macy. OxyContin is owned by a company called Purdue, who refused to take accountability for its highly addictive nature. Indeed, time and time again, the company deny that you can get addicted when it's taken for short-term you know, prescriptions, but this book finds out that patients got hooked in just 14 days and there are dozens of very sad case studies about family men and women who were prescribed OxyContin after a minor operational accident and five years later they've lost everything, mm. including their home, because they then turned to heroin to get a similar high. I just wanted to read a bit from page 60. In the early 1990s, probably 90% of the heroin market was still in cities like New York, Chicago and Detroit. There was this long-standing urban hierarchy of heroin that completely dominated the illicit opioid market in the United States. But when doctors started widely prescribing OxyContin for non-cancer pain in the late 1990s, it effectively nationalised the supply, making opioids no longer only a big city story. So that any doctor in any small town under the dispensation of a new FDA-approved prescription could now suddenly provide opioids to people with low back issues and so on. You read a lot about economic depression and loss of morale and I'm certain that that fueled the epidemic. But the supply expansion via OxyContin came before anything else. If it had not been for the supply expansion, then this epidemic would not have happened, said a historian. Right. It's a it's a heavy book. It's a historical book. You know, it's a it's a very thorough and intense work of nonfiction. So I have been reading kind of twenty pages every three days or something, and then going back to another book. But I think it's a really vital read. Yes. Actually, I had no idea about like obviously I knew that heroin was a massive problem to be you know really kind of non-specific about it. I didn't know it came from oxycontin, and I didn't know that unlike every other drug that tends to begin in you know high density cities with high crime rate and then it filters out to like the suburban or the rural areas oxycontin was the opposite it was developing in like very very kind of like slow peaceful non-criminal areas because Mm. it was being prescribed Mm. for non-cancer pain so that is a really interesting read by beth macy i Also recommend a play I went to see with my other sister. If you live or plan to visit London, it's called Witness for the Prosecution, a play by Agatha Christie. And you sit in County Court on the South Bank to watch it. It's so evocative and clever. And despite the fact that I felt like a retiree going to Agatha Christie on a Tuesday night with a bag of snacks on my knee, (laughs) I thoroughly enjoyed it. It's got a really clever twist. It would be a brilliant one to take your parent to. Me and my sister really wish we'd taken my mum to it. And... A lot of the time in the theatre, I know this is like a really awful thing to say, I get really sleepy. I'm very tired, you're there a very long time, and sometimes if it's like a lot of dialogue, I can start to feel a bit sleepy. I was honestly on the edge of my seat with my snacks. (laughs) Absolutely gripped this, so I really, really recommend it. It's had brilliant reviews. It's been on for a year, actually, and I went to celebrate the the year-long anniversary, but what's quite funny is that some of the audience are in the jury, and they give their verdict as if they are the jury, and they make little notes throughout, and they were very poker-faced. But one of them was a reporter from Good Morning Britain, Oh my god, your favourite programme. And so I was having little peeks at him throughout, <laughs> and he kept—he did keep doing little grins. He wasn't poker-faced. Have you ever listened to Sarah Pascoe on theatre? 
No. I think it's the funniest thing I've ever heard. Is that a podcast? No, it's a it's like a, a bit of stand-up that she's done. Actually, I think, Charlie, we should insert it here. It's very, very funny. I think theatre is diabolical. Uh, look, I do. Look, and also, I'm aware, if you're a performer of some kind, if you're an actor, look, please don't be offended. I don't mean being in the play. Obviously, if you're the person in the play that gets to put a wig on and walk up and down and move your arms and project your voice, saying things like, um, I think you'll find your contradicting yourself, Alan. <laughs> having to watch it. Dear Christ. <laughs> I finally got round to reading the New York Times piece on your fave new lady, Gwyneth Paltrow, from the summer. It was a profile that went viral in the summer. I don't really know how we missed it I don't time. know how I missed it, because I'm such a fan of hers. Oh my God, it's brilliant. It's very sharp. It's not very kind at times. It's very long, a bit weird funny, probing, it sent me down a whole rabbit hole of reading Taffy Brodessa Ackner's work and she's all of her profiles. Taffy, she's yeah. got, She's won a lot of awards for her profiles on Gabby Hoffman, who I know you love, and Britney Spears. It's a very, very long profile and it's absolutely brilliant, Dolly. You must go and read it. If you are remotely obsessed with Goop, which is rumoured to be worth 250 million, or you are obsessed, obsessed with GP herself, mm. as she's known to all of her employees and what Taffy calls her throughout the interview, then you will really, really enjoy it. I really see myself growing up and being like Gwyneth Paltrow but less rich and hot I don't know if you no you're not she's really start uppy she talks a lot about verticals and price no, points no not that side more just like all what, her yoga all the hippie madness yeah. the yoga and the crystals and the jade eggs and the vag yeah. steaming yeah I really like you ever steamed your vagina no but we have time it makes me think it would look like a gyoza afterwards oh my god my last recommendation of the week you'll like this one is a desert island disc it's the episode from the 30th of september with tom daly oh it's a lovely episode and it's a beautiful episode it's a very emotional episode it deals with everything from being a child and the utter worship and respect he has for his father who died of cancer at the age of 40 he was diagnosed when tom was just 12 And it also deals with parenthood. Tom has a little boy called Robbie. He's only 24, but his husband, Lance, is um, quite a lot older. Mm. I think he's in his early 40s. It talks about surrogacy and the kind of controversy or criticism that he received for not adopting when there are lots of babies in the world that need to be adopted. It talked about his wedding. He is, do you know what? He's a national hero and not just because of his diving, but because of his kindness and his generosity of spirit and his positivity. The way he talks about life, Tom Daly, is just wonderful. He's a very He's a he's a lucky man, although arguably, you know, the loss of a father mm. at a young age is not at all lucky. It's a lot to go through. But he's he's got this incredible platform and God is he grateful for it. And God does he want to, like, enrich the lives of others. And I actually think, for me as well, this episode really showed that Lauren Laverne is, is up to up to the task of hosting Desert Island Discs. You know, a lot of people, when Kirsty Young took her sabbatical, were like, how can she do it? Is she going to be good enough? And she has just got such a warm and delicious and empathetic voice in this episode, particularly when Tom gets very emotional speaking about his dad. You know, she doesn't cut him off. She doesn't sort of, like, abruptly change the topic or insert music at the wrong time. It's it's just a really generous and warm interview all round, and I absolutely loved it. Yeah, it's a fab interview. 
Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. For today's All The Special, we are honoured to have a giant of journalism, Lindsay Hilsom, join us to talk about her new book, In Extremis, The Life of War Correspondent Marie Colvin. Marie Colvin, often hailed as one of the greatest war correspondents of our time, was an American journalist who reported for the Sunday Times until her tragic death in Syria in 2012. She was known for her impassioned reporting in the Middle East, for speaking to Gaddafi in his first public interview after war was declared, and her fearlessness to the extreme, both in her professional and personal life. Lindsay, a friend and peer of Marie Colvin, is the international editor for Channel 4 News. She has covered many of the conflicts of recent years, including in Syria, Ukraine and Arab Spring. In 1994, she was the only English-speaking correspondent in Rwanda when the genocide began. She has won awards from the Royal Television Society and BAFTA, amongst others, and the Patron's Medal from the Royal Geographical Society. Her last book, Sandstorm, Libya in the Time of Revolution, was described by The Observer as an account with historic depth to match dramatic reportage. Before becoming a journalist, she worked for Oxfam in Central America and the Caribbean and UNICEF in Eastern and Southern Africa. In Extremis is published on November the 1st, but has already been named Radio 4's Book of the Week. Annie Lennox has said of it, writing a biography of Marie Colvin is like capturing lightning in a bottle. But Lindsay Hilsom has the knowledge and personal experience to help us understand what drew Colvin to rush towards the eye of the storm at such great risk. It is a superbly fitting tribute. Marie's story has now been turned into a film soon to be released starring Rosamund Pike as Marie and Jamie Dornan as the war photographer Paul Conroy. Welcome to the studio, Lindsay. It's lovely to be here. Lindsay, for anyone unfamiliar with Marie's work and life, can you tell us a bit about both the woman and journalist you've written about in this extraordinary new book? What the process of writing about a great friend was like and what made you want to write it? Well, I called the book in extremis, because that came from something Marie wrote. She said, what I write about is people who live in extremis and what really goes on in war. And I realised you know, she lived her own life in extremis too. Mm. You know, her personal life was as much of a war zone as, as what she was covering. You know, you'd get to somewhere, um, you know, somewhere in the Middle East, and then I, I'd see Marie and I'd go, Phew, I must be in the right place. I wouldn't think, oh, I must be in a safe place, far from it. But I'd think, oh, Marie's always right. She always gets the story. So if I'm here, I must be, I must be okay. Um, and, you know, we had that kind of easy relationship, that kind of friendship. And then in when the war in Syria began, she, um, we met in Beirut. We had dinner in, in Beirut. And she was going to be smuggled over the border into Babarama, which was a besieged enclave of Homs, a city in in Syria. And it was really dangerous. And I said, look, this is, this is way beyond my danger threshold. And she said, anyway, it's what we do, which is very Marie, you know. And so she went ahead and she did that. And she wrote an incredible story about the widow's basement where all the women and children were hiding from the shelling. 
and she came out and then she went back in again. She went back in again because she felt that she was abandoning people. So that's why she went back in. And then she, of course, she didn't call me before she went back in because I would have said, don't do it. And she called me after she got back in. And I, you know, these are the things that are imprinted on your, your memory. You know, she, I said, you know, why did you go back? She said, Lindsay, it's the worst thing we've ever seen. And I said, yeah, I know. But, you know, what's your exit strategy? And she said, that's it. I don't have one. We're working on it now. And a few hours later, she was killed by a mortar. So, you know, that really haunted me, you know. Of course it did, you know. She'd been killed and, ah. So, anyway, and it sort of went round and round in, in my head and I'd been thinking about what I should write about and then it took me about a year before I realised I should write about Marie. I mean, she wasn't going away. She wouldn't leave me alone anyway. She was always there. She was in my dream. She was in my head. And then the other incredible thing was that I learned that she had kept diaries from when she was a teenager, 13 years old, and I could have access to them. And so now that's a weird thing. You get to know your friend better in death than life. I mean, if Marie had lived, I would never have read her teenage diaries. Mm. So that, that was how it started. You sifted through 300 of her journals, which is a mammoth endeavour. Did you unearth anything of Marie in those journals that really surprised you or that you wish you'd known about her? Well, I think for me it was the teenage diaries. Because, you know, when you get to know... Marie and I became friends, I suppose, in our 40s. And when you get to make a friend in your 40s, you don't, it's not like when you make a friend at school, you know, where you talk about everything. So I didn't know all of her, her past and so on. I suppose one of the most extraordinary moments for me was I was in her her mother's basement and I found this journal which had a sort of white plastic cover and it had been locked with a little key and I couldn't find the key. And so I, I slit it open and I realised it was Marie's first journal from when she was 13 years old and I realised that probably nobody had opened it since, yeah. till, since she had locked it probably at the age of 14. Mm. And then what was in it was... Oh, God, it was, I mean, in a sense, it's like, you know, I don't know if you kept diaries as teenage girls, but, you know, it's all about who sat next to whom on the bus and what boy looked at what girl. And then, you know, 2nd of January, 1969, everyone is wearing pants. I've got to talk to Mommy into letting me do it, for honour's sake. I'm not sure I want to, but I must. (laughs) (laughs) On a mission, even though. On a mission. And then, and this one I love, wore pants. Blue dungaree bell-bottoms. Hard-playing instrument. Pants are too tight. Because she's trying to play the French horn. You can see that voice, that kind of funny and fearless voice emerging from those... Absolutely. Absolutely, and that's what I love about it. And I I know that for a lot of people who read the book, they'll be interested in the daring do of when she gets lost in the mountains in Chechnya and when she goes over the border with the rebels in Kosovo and when... Her eye was shot in in Sri Lanka and she lost the sight in it and had to wear an eye patch. But for me, I suppose it was was her early years, her childhood, her adolescence, just finding out how naughty she was. Oh, my God. So she, there was like a bad boyfriend called Chris and they were, you know, they'd take drugs, they'd drink, they'd break into people's gardens and skinny dip in their ponds, they'd have sex in the, you know, abandoned building up the road and... And the good boyfriend, Tom, was telling me all about, you know, the bad boyfriend, Chris. And I thought, this is a great story. And, and I was really 
dreading ringing Chris because I thought Chris will say, oh, it's not true. You know, and I rang Chris and he said, oh, my God, I was the bad boyfriend. <laughs> her parents thought I came from the wrong side of the tracks. You know, we were in bed together once and her father came up and screamed at me, get off my daughter. And so I said, oh, my God, it's all true. So, you know, that for me, that was what was exciting. Those were our favourite bits of the book, too. It's reading about what informed the woman that we came to know as the journalist Marie and you face fear in a way that most of us never will. Much of the fear we write and discuss now is sexual or mental. This is logistical. In 1986, Beirut, you write, was the most dangerous place on earth. Why do I cover wars, Marie reflects in her diary in 2001. It's a difficult question to answer. It has always seemed to me that what I write about is humanity in extremis the book's title, pushed to the unendurable. Would you say, Lindsay, that this is a common driving force in war reporting, the desire to write about humanity pushed to the unendurable? Yes, I would. But as ever with Marie, she took it to the extreme. So I think that all of us who cover conflict, you know, there's a sense that I feel, you know, I want to be where history is happening. I want to be there. And you have this kind of... Mm, if you miss a story or you, you miss something, you, you want to be there. And also, I think, you know, people talk about, you know, are you an adrenaline junkie and so on? And it's not quite like that. But it is true that in a war zone, things feel that they matter more. You know, the colours are brighter, the mountains are clearer. You have all of that sense of this being essential. But Marie had a very strong humanitarian urge and she really felt that reporting, her reporting could make a difference. And part of that came from Beirut in, uh, in 1996, what you've just been talking about. She and a photographer bribed a commander who was part of a guerrilla group besieging a refugee camp, bribed him into not shooting for the m minute it would take them to run across no man's land into the refugee camp. And this was a refugee camp where... There was, a, there was a doctor, Dr Pauline Cutting, and a nurse, Susie Whiten, two British women, who were basically looking after these people in this most appalling situation. People were you know, eating dogs and cats and so on. Anyway, in this situation, Marie saw a woman, a young woman who had gone to try and get food from outside of the camp being shot as she came back in. And she basically watched that woman die. And this had a profound impact on her, partly because the woman, Haji Ali Ahmed, reminded her of her own little sister, Kat. She was wearing a pair of earrings, which were very like a pair she had given to her sister, Kat. And she wrote that story. And a few days later, because of the sort of complexity of um, international relations at the time, uh, the Russians, Gorbachev, called, you put pressure on the Syrian government to stop that militia from doing that. And Marie's story was part of that pressure. Because in those days, the Sunday Times was a very important newspaper. And, you know, it was a time when international relations were such that what was written in a British newspaper could make a difference. And I think that made her feel, yes, we really can make a difference. And she really, some of us are a bit more cynical, <laughs> you know, really doubt if we do make a difference. But Marie was a true believer. I'm interested in what you say that British newspapers then could really make a difference. Do you feel like they no longer have the same impact now? No, because uh, the media is so much more diffuse and diverse now. And I think that, you know, 
foreign you know governments including our own have become sort of inured in some sense to you know what journalists do i mean not that i think it means it doesn't matter anymore of course i think it matters or i wouldn't do it but i think in a sense that the best you can hope for is to show what happens so that they can never say they didn't know they knew we told them we were there and we told them but i suppose i think that's probably the best you can do rather than making an actual difference now Extremity is an ongoing theme in the book. On the book's opening page, you begin with the poem Fair Weather by Dorothy Parker that includes the lines, This is no sea of mine that humbly laves untroubled sands, spread glittering and warm. I have a need of wilder, crueler waves. They sicken of the calm who knew the storm. It strikes me that you're painting a portrait of a woman who needed to go to the very furthest, deepest reaches of an experience, be it in her work, her drinking, her falling in love. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, I mean, I loved that poem. And there's another line in it which says, it talks about a reckless tide. And actually, that was my alternative title for the book, was mm. A Reckless Tide. That's also a great one. Because I just felt, and also because Marie loved to sail. And that was one of her things that, you know, we would talk about this, that when we were not working, you know, she would go sailing, i go horse riding. But, of course, being Marie, the kind of sailing she liked best was ocean racing, which is nearly as dangerous as war reporting. I mean, I mean she did a bit of, you know, sundowners on deck. But, uh, yeah, you can see from very early on, she's very sexually adventurous, and she has lots of boyfriends. You know, if she was a man, people would say she was swashbuckling. You know, and that's sort of what she's she's like. And I've, one of the things I find very interesting is some of the men I interviewed and some of the men she, she writes in her diary about when she's young, they say, oh, you're like a man. What does that mean? You know, she's not like a man. She was never like a man, but she was bold and she was brave and she didn't behave in a traditionally feminine way. And I guess that was something they found hard to take. But I think that in many ways she was reckless with her own heart. And she, you know, she, her first husband, um, you know, he left the honeymoon early to go and sleep with his mistress. It's not good behaviour really, is it? Though, I mean, in other ways, I mean, I think he really loved her and he tried to protect her in some ways, sort of from herself, because she was, she was reckless and she would go into dangerous things and he didn't want that. The second husband, oh, my God. I mean, the second husband, uh, Juan Carlos Gamucho, and he was this massive character, you know, and he drank. Beard and, and the cocaine. Beard and cocaine and women and sex. And I mean, I'm sure I never met him. I'm sure he was hugely exciting and wonderful to be with, not to marry. We all know those guys, right? You know, go out with him, have fun. It's exciting. Do not marry him. Yeah. In fact, there were points in the diary, quite a lot of points in the diary. When I'm reading the diary and I'm going, Marie, don't, don't do that. Don't do it. Oh, God. <laughs> she always does. For me, one of the most fascinating uh, characters is this guy, Lou Carr. So when she's quite young, she gets involved. He's sort of a mentor, a father figure. And he's like the missing man of the beat generation. He was somebody who knew Jack Kerouac and all of those people. So a different that generation. That's fascinating. Mm. Yeah. Um, kind of side story, almost worthy of its own book, mm. actually. Totally. And I, I never knew anything about that. Mm -hmm. You know, Marie never talked about him later. But, I mean, he, he was a very important influence on her. You know, he really believed in her as a journalist. In fact, he thought she could become a novelist. I mean, you can see he sort of poured all his own frustrated hopes, in a sense, into her. But the other thing which is I found very interesting about it, I mean, he, 
it's an extraordinary story. He was a murderer. He had killed somebody. Yeah, for the sake of our listeners, so he was friends with various beat poets. Yeah. Never was a poet himself. Was accused of murdering someone. Well, he did murder. He did murder somebody. He 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 murdered an older man who had come on to him. Mm. Um, you know, who was sort of, who was predatory, and then. He was in prison for a couple of years, and when he came out, he became a copy boy at UPI, the news agency where Marie worked. And in fact, On the Road by Kerouac is written on UPI teletype paper, which was provided by Lou Carr to Jack Kerouac. Isn't that amazing? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and he, you know, basically, and he had been an alcoholic and all sorts of things, but he kind of was very clean and he didn't really mix with the younger journalists and so on. He'd become a very senior editor by then. So he didn't really mix... He was a, a kind of a legend. And then he fell in love with a young woman with dark curly hair who came into the newsroom. And for me, one of the sort of universal things about it is so it starts with him as this father figure mentor and her as this young journalist. And then I can see in the diaries how the power starts to change because he's he's 30, 28, 38. He's, you know, 30 years older than her. And then she starts to feel more confident and then she starts to get sort of frustrated with him because he's a lot older than her. He's not physically fit enough for her. He can't hoist the sail when they go sailing together. Uh, if that's not a metaphor, I don't know what is. Um, <laughs> and, you know, and uh, and then in the end, she's got a job in Paris and she's gliding on past and leaving him behind. You portray Marie as an oxymoron, like so many women, incredibly strong yet intensely vulnerable, fiercely independent, resisting a white picket fence existence, but also in constant need of male approval. She writes in her diary in 1977, my sense of self is not independent of men, I need their feedback. When she discovers that her partner Richard is cheating on her, she goes around telling all of London. It was as if she was walking around London naked, you write. And as you've already mentioned, Marie's hugely chaotic love life is is a large part of her life and a large part of the book. And it seems like she wages battles in her love life that are as formative as those that she writes about and witnesses in war. This is a side of Marie that many of us would not have seen or known about. Did you hesitate to portray this vulnerability or was it hugely important to you to portray the, the whole woman, the full Marie. One of the things I was worried about, because I, I read a lot of biographies, um, you know, when I was thinking about this, and, you know, the, the, the way in which people write about men and the way in which people write about women, because you, you know those biographies of important men, which, you know, say, by 1946, he had married um, his childhood sweetheart, Mary, who bore him five sons. And uh, then he became prime minister, whatever. And then a few, you know, so about 100 pages later, it says, um, by then he had left Mary and married his secretary. And, uh, you know, it's kind of like, that's it. We have no more personal stuff. That's it, because he's the great man. And I thought, oh, my God, I'm falling into this trap where, you know, you put so much about the emotional life in because you're writing about a woman. And so I did worry about whether I put too much about the emotional life in. But then that was Marie, you know, and her personal life and the way her personal life and her professional life reflected each, each other, fed into each other, exactly. That was so much part of who she was that I felt I couldn't mm. do that. But it did, it does, it does slightly worry me in case I overdid that. But then also I was so fascinated by her, by her vulnerability and the fact that she was so brave and so strong. I mean, much braver than me. She'd go out much further than I would and stay much longer in, in war zones. And I suppose also... 
because she was so funny. You know, she was the best company. I mean, one of, you know, so one of my favourite bits is after she loses the sight in her left eye and she's shot um, crossing a front line in, in Sri Lanka and her best friend Katrina is arguing with her about the insurance, about how she isn't, you know, she should be, make sure that the Sunday Times give her more money and she goes... Yeah, I should have lost an arm. Then I would have got more money. You know, that's absolutely classic Marie. But, you know, she became very traumatised after that and very trembly and frail and, you know, spent lots of time in bed and couldn't get up. You know, that vulnerability, you know, was, was so much part of her and part of her story, I think. And fleshing out the emotional life makes so much sense when capturing her because what I got from the book was that she was a hugely passionate woman across her reporting, across her personal life. And to disregard that would be to disregard a huge part of her as a reporter. I think that's right. But I think that also it's about, you know, I think sometimes there can be this idea of the kind of the glamorous war reporter. Where Marie was very glamorous. There's no question about that. But... You know, a lot of what she went through was, you know, a version of what all women will go through. I mean, one of the things which I found amazing was, again, after, you know, when when she has to wear an eye patch um, and uh, she has one studied with rhinestones for parties, of course. But the way she starts to try and work through her, her feelings about it all is through clothes. So she writes this piece for for Vogue, which for some reason Vogue didn't publish. I thought it was a brilliant piece. Where she 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 wears a sort of you know a sundress uh, with you know lace and so on, and it just looks all wrong. She she feels that she's wearing somebody else's clothes, and then she realizes she has to have a different wardrobe and it has to be more structured and more trouser suits and so on. And then she has such understanding of herself because she says, "I realized that." By concentrating on the outer things, I was putting off dealing with the inner feelings which were much too difficult for me mm. to handle. Mm. And I thought that was so fascinating because mm. most of us as women like clothes and clothes are important to us. But that, you know, that Marie had understood that in a way. That kind of glamorous life that you speak of, that glitzy friend set, it's very um, evocative reading her friend group of the early noughties with Helen Fielding, who obviously wrote the international global sensation that's Bridget Jones's diary and Alexandra Shulman the former editor of Vogue and Rosie Boycott the journalist um, and she has all these parties in in Notting Hill um, and I really enjoyed that you really painted that you know more frivolous side of her life that she did like a glass of champagne and she did like her friend the designer what Bella Freud what do you mean a glass of champagne <laughs> <laughs> and Bella Freud made her a lime green mini dress for her second wedding and I think sometimes there's this idea that if you're I don't know, a war correspondent, you do a very serious job, that mm. that is you in your totality. And actually, she had this, yeah, this quite ritzy life when she wasn't in a, in a war zone. Well, I think that's part of the appeal and glamour and excitement of Marie. You know, I'd like to tell you that I have that ritzy and exciting <laughs> life as well. Alas, you know, my, my other side is that uh, I'm a North London housewife and I really, really think my garden is fantastic, even, you know, this time of year. So, you know, so yes, Marie did. She was very glamorous in that way. And it, there's a tradition of that, isn't there? Sort of Lee Miller and Martha Gellhorn and some of those, you know, World War II uh, female war correspondents and photographers. I think Marie was very much in, in that tradition. 
Marie's father was a military man, one who she looked up to, though often locked horns with, and felt the absence of for many, many years after he died, aged 50. When she was a little girl, you describe how they would sing military hymns and she seemed to find it romantic and exciting. How much do you think the legacy and the relationship with her father had an impact on her professional passions and mission? I think it's in some ways... She spent her whole life trying to live up to her father's ideals. And uh, she writes in her diary quite early on, after he dies, you know, all I wanted to do was make him proud. And I think that's one of the really sad things about Marie's life. I think that she was always trying to make her father proud because they had clashed so much. And when he died, they hadn't really made amends. I'm sure he was proud of her, you know, but they hadn't really made amends. And I think that that was, that was a very sort of deep and important part of, of her psychology. Marie was not an objective reporter. She would personalise her stories to create vivid stories of human tragedy and suffering, of strength and endurance, all written in the first person, which, as you write, was rare in the history of war reporting. And, you note know, some colleagues worried about her relationship with Arafat, that she was too close to the Palestinians. Marie's reporting, when I read it, used to make me feel furious and devastated at the same time, particularly when it often did involve children. As a war reporter yourself, do you feel like reporters have a duty to be neutral or like Marie? Do you think it's impossible not to take sides? Well, I don't think... How should I put this? Marie was never the kind of journalist. She was not sort of ideological. In mm-hmm. Some journalists go out and they are ideologically on one side or another. Marie was never like that. But she was always inspired to write the story of the underdog. But, you know, so, for example, in Kosovo, I mean, I think she was quite swayed by the Kosovo Liberation Army. But that didn't stop her reporting on atrocities, which the Kosovo Liberation Army then committed in Serbia. She reported that too. So she was a very good reporter in that way. She wasn't, she never suppressed uh, facts or anything because it didn't fit in with a particular point of view which you know a lot of journalists do but she did get passionately passionately attached you know to to people who were suffering and so you know the last re- reports from from Syria it was Assad regime said that it was just terrorists in this enclave and she saw it was not just terrorists it was women and children and civilians and that was what she was reporting so you know, she was not on the side of the rebels, but she certainly was on the side of, of people who were being uh, being killed by an indiscriminate bombardment, and it was that indiscriminate bombardment that killed her in the end. So I think that there's an argument which says that she sort of over-identified, you know, with those people. I think I am more cautious as a journalist... Of attachment? More, of attachment and more sceptical than she was because you know i i basically i've spent a lot of time with a lot of different guerrilla groups and in the end they all turn out to be as horrible and as Mm. venal as the people they're fighting Mm -hmm. against i'm afraid that is my experience and so i'm probably more skeptical um in advance as it were and i think it's also partly to do because i television and so you you have to be a little bit more stand backy because of that's the the kind of rules of television in, in this country but i think that marie how marie's passion was what really brought home these stories to readers and that was her great in a sense that was her great strength as a journalist and maybe a weakness as well it reminded me something of something that 
Christina Lamb said, I can't quite remember when, but she said that what, and I love her writing mm. as well, is that she likes to tell stories because it's really hard now to get people interested in war because there's so much of it going on and it's so hard to keep up with what's going on in Syria or in Iran or in Iraq or in Turkey or you know probably soon to be Brazil and I I struggle to keep up as as a journalist and I thought that she made a really good point that in order to keep people interested and to keep people knowledgeable as much as they can about what's going on in the rest of the world. You have to tell stories through the human, human through yeah. the human. You do, but I suppose what I also think is that you have to combine that with some kind of explanation and understanding and yes. analysis because otherwise people think, oh God, it's just a shitty world out there. It's horrible and yeah, violent really and nasty and I don't understand and I'm just going to shut the curtains, you know. And, and people do feel And like a lot of people do feel that. And I don't blame them for feeling that. Constant bad news. Cycle. Constant bad news. No, So I actually think that you have to what I try and do is to combine the frontline reporting which is about people and what's going on in war with a kind of analysis and an attempt to explain and provide some kind of understanding and in fact I mean I think probably the nicest thing anybody ever said to me a woman came up to me at a literary festival once and she said um, you make me feel that I can understand these things and I thought, well, that's probably the best I can do because that's I a think, huge compliment. It, yes, I was very happy about that because I felt I feel that this stuff is so overwhelming. Yeah, and I suppose in the, arguably that's somewhere where Marie and I would be slightly different because I think Marie's emphasis on the human story was almost total. Mm-hmm. Of course, she would have some political background explanation, but that was her thing. Whereas my thing, I suppose, is to try and balance mm. balance the two. Mm. In the early noughties, Marie suffered from depression and PTSD and underwent a fascinating therapy called eye movement desensitisation reprocessing, which teaches you how to reprogram your mind. Have you suffered from the psychological effects of war? Is it, to an extent, given what you do, is it an inevitability? Now, you're doing exactly what I say in the book about the young women at the Amnesty Conference who asked, who Maria and I were on stage and... Uh, said you always hate getting yeah, asked yeah, that question. Yeah, and uh, they are one of them. But we didn't said, ask are you, you traumatised? Anyway, they said, are you traumatised? And how do you deal with being traumatised? And there's a long pause and Marie looks at me and she says, and she looks back at the audience, she says, Lindsay and I, we go to bars and we drink. <laughs> I love that bit. Yes. Um, I have not had PTSD and I think that the the most traumatic thing for me was being in Rwanda during the genocide and I was the only English-speaking foreign correspondent there at the time and I saw some pretty awful things which I'm not going to describe. But when I came out of that, I felt I needed philosophical help more than more than psychological help. And also something Germaine Greer said helped me. This is a kind of weird connection. Because, you know, Jemaine Gray has this thing about that she was raped, but she says the problem is not hers, the problem was the rapist's problem. He was the problem. He was the one with the problem, not her. She refused to let this be a problem for her. And I read about that just about that time, and I found it so helpful because I thought, right, these people murdered these other people before my very eyes in Rwanda, but I didn't do anything wrong. I am not, you know, they are the ones who did something wrong. And so I'm going to resist letting myself be traumatised or let my, you know, my own way of being be shaped by that. Mm. 
And so I found that that helpful. And that doesn't mean that I never had nightmares or anything. I did, and I, you know, occasionally do. But I've kind of kept hold Resisted of that. Resisted letting it change you. And yes, and I think that also with Marie, because of this very chaotic love life she had... You know, I, I have a really boring love life. I mean, I've been with the same bloke for 20 years, got involved with my cameraman. So predictable. <laughs> um, he's not the cameraman anymore. He actually said to me once, you know, the height of my ambition is not to be Lindsay Hilsom's cameraman forever. <laughs> Can you imagine? Anyway, he does something completely different now. But we have been together quite a long time. And so, you know, that stability, I think, yeah. is incredibly helpful and Marie never achieved that stability mm. and I think that's one of the reasons why she was you know plagued with the PTSD and, mm. and depression mm. and alcoholism I mean because she did she did drink a lot mm. and she smoked a lot and she smoked a lot Marie is quite funny about feminism she's determined not to be considered one they certainly weren't cool when she was growing up and she quotes her hero Martha Gellhorn the travel writer and war correspondent married to Ernest Hemingway who says that feminists knock her but she <laughs> She's a feminist icon to many, operating in what is largely seen as a man's world, risking her life to tell stories, overcoming adversity. She weathers sexism, as male reporters accuse her of using feminine wiles to get a story in Basra. And she notes that she's more driven than a male war correspondent because it was harder to succeed. Maybe we feel the need to test ourselves more, to see how much we can take and survive. Even her desire to not be a woman writer, but merely a writer, is a feminist endeavour being underscored as it is by equality. Do you think Marie could just not reconcile herself as a lover of men with the feminist cause? And what do you think she'd have made of the Me Too movement that we're very much living through now? I mean, I think she was a feminist and she was also very much a girl's girl. I mean, her women friends were absolutely central to her. And I think that the sort of not being a feminist was a kind of thing in the in the 70s, really, when she was growing up. She didn't want to be seen. It, she had a very strange view of, of no, how should I put it? It wasn't strange. I mean, she had a view of, of feminists at the time as, as, you know, the sort of dungaree and all the rest of it. And, she, and her femininity was very important to her. But I think that she reconciled all that later on. And I think she was a really, a really good feminist and a really, you know, strong feminist. I mean, we're all, you know, I was listening to your podcast um, with the Guilty Feminists the other day and I was actually, I was thinking about it, I really enjoyed it because I was thinking about it, well, what's my Guilty Feminist thing? And this is it, (laughs) this is it. So Marie would always say, it doesn't matter what the weaponry is, whether it's a T-72 tank or a T-55 tank, it doesn't matter, it's the human story. I don't agree with her. I think it does matter because I think you should know what the weaponry is is because then you you know if you don't know what the weaponry is you don't know who supplied it and what country and all this it tells you a lot in a war zone but i'm a bit bollocks about weapons recognition too so my guilty feminist thing is i take a picture and i send it to tim my partner who's very good on weapons recognition (laughs) (laughs) and he says yeah it's a t-72 i'm a war correspondent but i always ask my husband what the weapon is Is that a really awful guilty feminist thing? No. Lindsay, compared to mine and Pandora's on that episode, I think you are the least of the Absolutely guilty feminists. Absolutely not. I think reading the book, and I think this is, you know, this is obviously like culturally, we've been through so many different epochs with yeah. feminism, is it was it was a very different thing. It was considered a very different thing. Yeah. It was discussed as a very different thing. So it was probably more like the the connotations of being a feminist, not the actual active... Yeah, she actively was. Yeah, she actively was, and I think that she grew into it, and I think that, you know, she, yeah, very much so, and I think that she knew she was a sort of feminist, you know, icon or, or role model in, 
in lots of ways. But of course, she did have that incredible um, romantic weakness, <laughs> if I can put it that, um, for men. And the Me Too thing is interesting because I think it is a different thing about, you know, my generation and your generation. I think for Marie and I, of course, you know, yes, yes, you know, guys grape you, touch you up, blah, blah, blah. And you just kind of like, you just get on with it and, you know, and say, well, that's life. And for me, it's really interesting to see how younger women don't accept it in the way that we accept it. And I feel mixed about it because on the one hand, I think it's fantastic not to accept it and to stand up and say. Mm. And on the other hand, I think, oh, God, you know, life's short. Just, you know, this is an arsehole. Get rid of him and just get on with life. I'm not even going to give him a second thought. Mm. I'm certainly I not going to let that. him make me a victim mm. and the rest of my life traumatised because some bloke touched my tit. You know, I'm not going to let that happen. It's so <laughs> such a good time. <laughs> I think I just love the word tit. Um, no, I think that's a really valid point because there are so many conversations about um, victimhood. And I think obviously it's quite ironic that we're talking about the victimhood of, you know, tit touching versus the victimhood of what you've seen in the yeah, Rwandan, what Marie the Rwandan genocide. Yeah. And I don't want to do the, you know, be facetious because obviously you can't yeah. compare the two. But I think, yeah, I, I think that's really... Interesting what you I'm, I'm interested to hear about the, the kind of differences between you, Marie, when you talk about mm. your friendship. One of the throwaway couple of sentences mm. is a kind of an anecdote that I would love to hear more on is you, you talk about you lost your temper with her once because you set up an interview for her and she turned up drunk two hours late. I could have killed her. <laughs> I could have killed her. So she rings me and we're both working on Iran and we'd been in Iran together during the 2009 Green Revolution, you know, when there was, uh, the election was rigged and people had risen against the government and then it was quashed. And, uh, yeah, and I had a really good contact, <sighs> and uh, which she wanted. And so I said, yes, of course, because, you know, we, we were very collaborative together. And also yeah. we weren't in competition. Sunday Times, Channel is not in competition. And then the person was actually quite excited about meeting Marie because, um, you know, it was two people and they were excited because they'd heard of her and so on. And then she turns up pissed as a fart <laughs> and late. I mean, so annoying. But, you know, what can I say? That was Marie. Sometimes she was like that. Anarchist. Uh, yeah, anarchist. And, and you know, she was a very odd mixture in that way in that she could be... I mean, that was... You know, I have no illusions about Marie in that sense. It was quite, that was a very selfish thing to do. But then, you know, she'll be out on a story in the middle in Libya or something and remembering that it's somebody's birthday or she's missing somebody's drinks and, you know, remembering to send them an email saying, I'm really sorry, I can't be there and so on. So, you know, she could be... Very thoughtful. Very thoughtful. And then she could be quite selfish as, as well. But as Pandora said, I think that's what's so refreshing about reading this kind of, this description of this woman, because that that is a human, you know, it's yeah. full of contradictions and full of good and bad. Yeah, and I hope that I didn't, because, you know, in a sense, one of the things that slightly worries me is like the myth of Marie, because yes. there's this film, there's two films, you know, there's a drama doc based on um, Paul films. Conray's book, which is about the the last trip where to Homs, to Babarama, where she was killed, and, and Paul, who is amazing, he survives, so that's a drama doc. And then there's this feature film starring Rosamund Pike as Marie. Rosamund Pike is amazing. You know, the thing which is really interesting about it is that she's got Marie's movements. Really? And I wouldn't have... 
if you'd asked me how does Marie move, I'm not sure I would have been able to describe it. Mm. But the moment I saw Rosamund Pike, I thought, oh my God, that was how Marie moved mm. in this angular it's way. Figure, yeah, it. really, it's just so interesting that that's the the thing. I mean, the voice is good and all that, but it's the movement which is the real the real key thing. Anyway, but one of the things I was worried about was contributing to this myth of Marie, that she was the greatest journalist that ever lived and all this, but she wasn't the greatest journalist that ever lived. She was a fantastic journalist. I think that she really changed war reporting in this country because of her passion and the use of the first person. And so I think she was quite pioneering in that way. But she was just this, you know, deeply flawed, amazing, wonderful woman, person, friend, you know. Uh, I was going to say wife, nightmare wife. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and and so, you know, she wasn't a, a myth. And yet the very act of writing the biography, I'm turning her into a myth, aren't I? No, I don't think so at no. all. I think that's what is so refreshing as you, as you read the book is that you can sense your as you said, when you kind of would lose your patience reading her diaries or kind of frustrations or feeling dismayed about certain things rather than excusing every action and kind of mythologising and, and making I her mean, sort the of sacrosanct. Thing that the point, I'll tell you the point where I was most angry with her was that she, when she's um, with Juan Carlos, the guy who becomes a second husband, he has a daughter, Anna, who's a lovely young woman who I've talked to quite a lot. She's fantastic. She's seven years old and they go to a party in Jerusalem. They're living in Jerusalem and Juan Carlos gets completely blind drunk and Marie is furious and she stomps off home, leaving Anna at the party with Juan Carlos and Anna and everybody else is drunk and high and all the rest of it. And Anna ends up, aged seven, having to steer her father into a taxi and take him home. I was so angry with Marie at that point. I was furious with her. How dare she leave that little girl there in such a situation? That was when I really wanted to ring her up and say, you, Mm. how could you have done that? But I think that's what added so much brilliant kind of texture and nuance, you know, and not without its complications. This was a woman that really wanted a baby for a long period of time. And she had dreadful, heartbreaking luck on that front. But then you do present this a fairly terrible story where, you know, she sort of forgets Anna and Anna has to help her her drunken father get home. And, you know, you're showing that you can still really want a baby and still do some pretty <laughs> dubious stepmothering. And I think that was a not only a brave, I'm always a bit ambiguous about using the word brave, but a really vital thing mm. is to, you know, is to show that kind of slightly more complicated, unedifying side of a woman that you can strive to be a mother yeah. and mm. still be a bit shit when it comes to a child sometimes. I mean, later in life, when people um, would ask Marie about um, what she felt about not having children, she would sort of growl just as well. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, there's so many light moments in the book, considering that it's a mostly weighty subject matter. Um, You recount the time that her La Perla bra was looted from a hotel in East Timor and she expensed the Sunday Times for it. That was one of her favourite stories. (laughs) When the male accountant retorted that underwear couldn't possibly cost that much, the female accountant replied, Marie's does. (laughs) And another time when she's pondering the differences between men and women and war, she writes in her diary, from experience, I know men think differently from women, but since I've never been able to figure out their behaviour in other walks of life, I find it just as impossible to explain why they think differently in wars. <laughs> yes, that's Marie. 
Can you tell us a little bit about that side of Marie and how it manifested in your friendship and work? I mean, you've you've definitely threaded it into your stories that we've heard so far. But was that humour something that she brought even to the weightiest of situations? Oh, Marie was the best fun on the road. You know, she was just and she had she was a very good raconteur. And uh, yeah, I mean, you, an evening in the bar with Marie, you know, would be amazing. You know, the story of her, you know, her friendship with Gaddafi. She knew Gaddafi for a long time. And one of her favourite stories was the time when, I mean, he was a very, very weird guy, right? You know, <laughs> there were, he, she answered her hotel room and she looked out and there was this enormous nurse in nurse's uniform and this tiny little bloke next to the nurse. And they, and they basically said, we've come to take your blood. <laughs> And, and she's going like, what? And, you know, uh, the brother leader wants your blood. And she's like, Ooh, I, don't, I don't think she managed. Because he was worried she was ill. Well, he, that's what he said. <laughs> Who knows what he wanted it for? He was very weird. Anyway, and so she it sort of ends up, you know, she managed to get rid of them. And she thinks of the next day, she says, well, I'm not hanging around here. I'm going to get the next plane out. And she goes downstairs and the reception at the hotel has been told to keep her passport. So she can't leave the country. But luckily because it's Marie, 417, who are Yasser Arafat's bodyguards, are in the lobby. And they see her in distress and they say, what's the problem? And she tells them and they say, we'll get the passport back. (laughs) So they get her passport and drive her to the airport and she leaves. And the next time she sees him, though, doesn't he roar with laughter he and say, I can't believe you were going to let me take your blood? Oh, well, he says, she never really, really yeah, she gets to the bottom of it. Remember right. when she I tried to take your blood? And he says, oh, remember that time I tried to take your blood? Ha, ha, ha. <laughs> so, you know, Marie was full of, of stories like that. And she just, she was just fun, you know? She was just the best fun. I miss her. I miss her so much. Mm. Marie's death heralded a change in war reporting for good. Much of the war in Syria now is filmed by brave citizen journalists on smartphones. In the six years since Marie was killed in Syria, journalism as a whole has gone through an enormous change. Social media is now a huge part of reporting. What do you think Marie would have made of it now? Would she have refused to go on Twitter? What do you think? Well, I think that Marie would have always believed as I do in the importance of eyewitness reporting in being there because and you know that was one of the the things that she wrote about quite a lot you know that in the end war doesn't change it's about broken buildings and broken bodies and you have to be there and see it and that is how you report it but I think that one of the things which is fascinating you know is the is the sort of digital journalism and investigation that we're seeing now and so you look at all this stuff we've had in you know um, with the Skripals and and so on and how it's these digital techniques of finding out who these people were who came from Russia and you know attempted to assassinate the Skripals that's not about the kind of journalism that I do or Marie did. This is a different kind of journalism. It's very forensic Mm. and it requires a different sort of personality, certainly not her personality or mine. It's sort of endless hours in front of a screen. But, you know, that is, that's really, really important. And I think that the other thing, you know, people talk about war corresponding being very dangerous and obviously it is. And And as you were saying, I mean, Marie's death and the the kidnap of James Foley and other journalists in Syria. I think it may, you know, that was a point where, you know, I didn't go to dangerous places for about a year after that. I just couldn't face Mm. it. And I sort of eased myself back into it. And then a lot of editors are very reluctant now to, to send people. 
But, you know, the most dangerous reporting now is investigative reporting. I mean, look, we've had three journalists killed in European Union countries in the last year. You know, in Malta, in Slovenia and in Bulgaria. And, these... and 70 are currently in prison, aren't they, by Erdogan? Yeah, right. In Turkey, yes, it's a huge... 70 journalists. Yeah. And I feel like that's not hugely talked no, about. It isn't, yeah. But I mean, the journalists in Turkey are people who he rega- who Erdogan regards as enemies, of political enemies, which isn't necessarily true, they're just objective journalists. But the other three murders are journalists who are investigating the nexus between organised crime and governments uh, or people within government, politicians and organised crime. And to me, this is what's terrifying, that these are the people who are being murdered now. It's not, you know, Marie was killed by a mortar and I, she was targeted. But, you know, this there was this Bulgarian journalist who had just exposed corruption in her own government. She was raped and murdered. I mean, this is horrendous. And I think that that's, you know, that's one of the things that's really bothering me at the moment is this sense in which our government, other governments, you know, they may say, oh, this is a bad thing. But, you know, what power to stop this from happening? And, you know, and it's a lot of it is to do with the rise of organised crime. Mm. Mm, that's so interesting that you say that everyone thinks of war reporting as the most dangerous form of journalism, but mm. actually the way that wars are fought now and how political Mm. everything has become has introduced a new and different kind of type of danger, particularly with terrorism becoming Mm. something that's so prevalent in our everyday lives now. When Marie dies, um, you you almost can't believe it reading the book, even though the entire book is obviously leading up to that Mm. moment. She's so vital um, in your writing and in your prose, you can't believe she's gone. And I remember feeling that when she died in 2012. What do you think we should all learn from Marie Colvin? What is her legacy? Oh, what a difficult question. Well... Some friends and I have started a little project providing support to young female journalists in the Arab world, Arab yeah. journalists. And I think that's one of the things that we really want to to be her legacy. Yeah. That foreign corresponding is not quite as it was. That, you know, all the countries which Marie reported on, whether it's Palestinian territories or Syria or Libya or whatever, there are a lot of young women who want to be journalists now and trying to be journalists. And they face a lot of obstacles, whether it's family or whether it's, um, you know, the newsroom editor who thinks, oh, well, only the guys can go out and do this or, or whatever. So this little project providing support to them that you know is one is a legacy I hope and then I think it is that oh what can I say it's that thing about being passionate and really Mm. believing in things and you know really caring and not being cynical I mean I think that's the thing about Marie she was never cynical you know she really believed sometimes to her detriment sometimes yeah absolutely but you know I think that that that's her her legacy and um and you know a good martini cocktail. <laughs> she really believed in a good vodka martini. <laughs> Lindsay, thank you so much for coming on the High Low. In Extremis, the life of war correspondent Marie Colvin is out on November the 1st. Thank you. Thank you very much for everyone who listened to the High Low. Don't forget to rate, review and subscribe. It helps boost us in the charts and helps other people find us. You can email the High Low, the High Low Show at gmail.com or tweet us at the High Low Show. Bye-bye. Bye.
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.